up, guys? Welcome to episode two of the Levers podcast. Uh, I'm one of your levered lads, Teej. I'm with my usual co-conspirators, Sam Hake, a.k.a. Shake, and Chris Heaney, a.k.a. Cashflow, a.k.a. Lil Hack. So for this second episode, um, it was actually pretty, I think, obvious to us where to go next. Uh, I think in the first, we talked about sort of a, a kind of a bedrock lever, uh, first principle that could underlie a lot of your behavior. And it was a pretty natural jump to come to fasting. Um, cause it's kind of one of the key, uh, minimalist techniques in the health and wellness sphere, at least kind of in our opinions. So, um, what kind of is fasting? Where did it come from? How does it play a role in broader contemporary society today? So, um, fasting has long been kind of a tradition, um, in many places of the world, um, but particularly in religions and spiritual practices. So as many of you may know, it has, some role in Eastern Orthodox Christianity and Lent has role um, for Judaism um, in Yom Kippur and Islam in Ramadan, as well as countless other um, traditions, religious, state, spiritual, um, etc. And even before that, right, like um, fasting was a sort of a, it was a state of nature um, for both animals and humans for a very long period of time. Nature was volatile. There was stress. There were times where there was no food, there was no water, and there were times where there was a lot of food and a lot of water. So it was kind of natural. Um, our genes came from a place um, that was used to that volatility. Um, but fast forwarding to today, it's very, very different, right? Um, fasting is is kind of associated, it's um, kind of quarantined over with strict spiritual and religious practices and seem as an, an extreme for most of us, right? Like, we've, we've got food, we've, we've got water, we've got shelter, why do we need to torture ourselves? But um, in this episode, we're going to go over why we actually need to, to some extent, um, lean into that pain, um, and why it's important, and why it's a part of super, super deep health. Um, before this episode, we've all fasted for somewhere between 24 and 36 hours, which is... Uh, I mean, how how often do you lads fast? Is it is it a, is it a weekly shtick or is it just IF? Well, <clears throat> for me, doing a long term one is pretty rare. I think I've done maybe five ever, the more than twenty four hours. Um, but pretty much every day, I'll do sixteen plus hours. And so, yeah, I'm on is that, that, that inter intermittent fasting train most days? Sixteen hour fast. Are you guys repping like a lunch dinner or, or one meal a day type rep? I usually do a lunch dinner. But lately, I mean, I so actually, um, let's see, today's Thursday. So on on Tuesday, because I knew we were going to start our fast uh, Tuesday night, um, Tuesday I, I did an OMAD just to kind of prepare me for it. Um, What's OMAD? OMAD's one, one, meal uh, one meal a day. Yeah. Yeah. For our, for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a good, it's a good uh, acronym. There's a lot of a lot, a lot of busted acronyms. Omad is is kind of fresh. Breakfast yeah. is the least important, the least important meal of the day, according to uh, the Neo FDA. So, Dude, once you're on the intermittent fasting gang, you you cut out breakfast for quick. For me, I, I think that's the most traditional route I've seen. Yeah, breakfast is busted. Breakfast is busted. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you something about breakfast. Breakfast being the most important meal of the day, 
you guys all grew up hearing that, right? Like my mom used to say that to me. Did you guys have a yeah. 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 So so that shit comes from General Mills. That's a General Mills advertising yes. slogan from the twenties and thirties. That is fucking sketch sandwich. To get you to buy fucking like oatmeal and you know, this bullshit granola starch and cereals. <laughs> yeah. Shovel shovel carbs in your goddamn face before before school. Dude. That shit is nuts. And that's stuck with us that's stuck with us for a hundred years, a century. Yeah, we're still saying that. Yeah, it's crazy, man. I know, I know. For me, and I'm sure there's, you know, other people can relate. Like, if I eat breakfast, specifically if I eat like more than 50 grams of carbs for breakfast, there's no way I can like be at maintenance or a deficit the rest of the day. It's like literally impossible for me. Whereas, yeah. Whereas fasting, it's one of the reasons I love fasting. Like for me, it's it's actually easier to just not eat than than like restrict slightly. Yeah, I mean, moderation is is so difficult. Like you can, I mean, that, that's one of the. I mean, we can talk about this a, a bit later, but I feel like to to dive in. I mean, fasting is like we referred to it last time. Is that kind of you list is packed, right? Instead of every second, every minute, every hour of every day moderating your intake, right, which takes a lot of willpower and just time and energy constantly. Um, you know, refocusing and, and moderating. Instead of that, you make a Ulysses pack. I'm not going to eat at all during this time, and then I eat roughly what I want during this time. It's much easier to follow that kind of that kind of you know binary strategy. It's also, which we'll get into, much healthier to follow that binary strategy than sort of you know this this moderated average throughout the day. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And so I can jump in and kind of go over a couple of the uh, the types of, of fast that, that that are common. Um, so some yeah, some people consider caloric restriction itself like a type of fast. I mean, I don't know. Nowadays, there's kind of a loose definition of what's fasting versus not, and you get a lot of disagreements about it. I would say, I mean, f- f- I, it's for us three, like it's not that important. But I would not. I don't think any of us would consider caloric restriction fasting. You know, if you're eating at a 500 calorie deficit. That's all it is, is eating in a deficit. But uh, probably the most popular is intermittent fasting. From what I can tell, like the 16-8. So for the listeners, when we talk about that, it's, you know, 24 hours in a day, 16 hours fasted, eight hours fed. And again, kind of like we're talking about with breakfast, most people are going to do a, skip a breakfast or put it around their sleeping window. So if you sleep for eight hours, you're really only awake fasted for, for eight hours. Um, and then within intermittent fasting, there's also there's pretty much endless variations, but there's a twenty hour, four hour twenty hour fasted four hour eating, and then the OMAD, which we refer to, one meal a day, which would kind of be like a <clears throat> twenty three hours fasted one hour fed, um, and then what we all did, just leading up to the pod, periodic fasting, so you know, intervals longer than a day, um, and again people kind of unlimited types of uh variations i don't know if i didn't i i should have looked into this but there's that there's that one case of the guy who fasted for like a year do you guys know what i'm talking about i just thought of this yeah and he he lost like 100 pounds or 150 pounds or something right yeah dude and all he had was like electrolytes and like a little bit of milk and sugar with his coffee every now and then but he literally didn't eat for like yeah, a year we, <laughs> yeah which which is which is a good time to to tell the listeners um well, these are things we all have experience with. Don't embark on any of this without consulting a medical practice. Yeah, none of us are 
Then there's the doctors for sure. <laughs> but the, we're also the way not financial advisors, so don't listen to any financial. <laughs> well, yeah. well, speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> not an expert on anything except memes. So if I show you a meme, it's, it's, a, it's a strong recommendation. <laughs> I don't uh, know. I feel like I, I feel like I'm an ex, I feel like I'm an expert on on pontificating now. <laughs> the um, I'm what an was expert on thrashing the the, the experts. <laughs> <laughs> critic. All right, all right, back back. Yeah, critic. Back back to the normal. The normal so <laughs> back to the scheduled program. So the uh, the thing I was going to say is I don't know if you guys have ever seen this guy Ted Naiman. Are you familiar with him, TJ? He's like a, a doctor. Oh, who's that? Um, well, he, so he, he's kind of his thesis or whatever is this thing called the protein energy uh, hypothesis. But it doesn't really have to do with fasting. But the way he explained fasting, I think um, I, I liked it. Like he basically said, the more over fat you are, the, the longer you can fast. You know what I mean? So for someone who's like 12% body fat, it's not, it's most likely not, you know, beneficial to fast longer than the 36, 48, definitely 72. At a certain point, it's like, you know, there's not really a point to it. But if you're like this lad we're talking about, who was probably like 400, 500 pounds, he fasted for over a year, totally fine, right? Um, right. But uh, that the, the periodic fasting, I really like. And I feel like once you step into the periodic fasting over 24 hours, that's when you start kind of picking out the uh you know fair weather fans it's like it's pretty easy for everyone to do an intermittent fasting but like to not eat for over a whole day is is actually that's right. when I, that's when i really think you start to get a lot of the benefits we're going to talk about and then a, a couple other ones right. alternate day fasting i've never done this but i know some people do basically you eat one day you don't eat the next day you eat one day you don't eat the next day um and then i had moderated fasts here some people would some people do like a fat fast where they only consume fat. It's like a po popular in the keto space. I've also heard of like an egg fast. Again, a keto thing. You only eat eggs for a certain period of time. To me, it's like yeah. if you're eating that many calories, it's not really a fast in my opinion. Um, but that there's, is, a, there's an egg. There's an egg fast. You just suck <laughs> egg. Yeah, dude, you literally just eat only eggs and like you, it's like a <laughs> lose, you know, lose two pounds and two days or whatever. Oh, shit. I, I didn't realize I've been doing an egg fast for three years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, Chris, you want to jump in and kind of explain, like, maybe how fasting is a lever? Ooh, nice. Yeah. So the reason a fast is a lever is um, kind of goes back to minimalism, where this absence of caloric intake um, so this bit of, uh, like restraint and just this input of willpower, uh, gives you a disproportionate, uh, amount of basically health benefits. And so Tej will probably talk about this more as we go and talk about the longer fast, but the longer you've been fasting, the more you get into this process of autophagy where your body's recycling out dead cells, um, and kind of rebuilding um, from the ground up and also you get deeper into like fat loss um, and some other health benefits um, so there you see the longer you've been in the fast for that just like marginally more uh, willpower and restraint from eating you get a disproportional health benefit <clears throat> and then another interesting thing about fast is that uh, 
it gets back to this like multi-dimensional benefit. Um, by fasting, you get health benefits, but you also get to reconsider your relationship to food. Um, so for a lot of people, uh, for all of us, it's pretty easy just to sink into just eating all the time. Um, and by going through the fast, you kind of uh, get to re-examine your relationship with food. And I, I think that's part of where it came from for like religious reasons. Um, just this idea of abstinence and repositioning yourself uh, in relation to food is really valuable. And so as you get these multiple types of benefits from fasting, you kind of get that, uh, you get that lever feel where you're kind of dialed on multiple fronts. Um, it's just not one simple, um, benefit. Hell yeah. And also, you know, I'm of the opinion, we don't have relationships with food. We have relationships with people and fasting helps you realize that. Cause I definitely, me personally, man, I'm a fucking foodie. You know, I heard Ben Greenfield say it like, no one likes talking as much about not eating as someone who's like obsessed with food, you know? Like, it's such a simple thing, yeah. but it's like, for me, it's like, dude, if I'm fasting, everyone knows, you know, everyone knows whether they, they wanted to hear about it or not. I'm fucking telling them. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you're yeah. tired. I'm fasted, bro. <laughs> I'm fucking 20 hours. Right I'm, <laughs> I'm so fasted, fucking bitch. <laughs> yeah, he's like, just, just suck it up and don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, dude. Just drink some coffee, go on a walk. No one wants to hear that you're fasted. I'll say, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Even though we're doing a podcast about fasting and we're telling everyone we're fasted, don't talk about it in real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it should be like Fight Club, you know? First rule. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, do, see, do you want do you want to get into autophagy a little bit? Because I, you know, I personally actually don't fully understand it. I mean, I know what it is in a simple definition, but. So yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy to do that. Um, do you want to just the truth of the matter is? I was gonna say, do you want to just like start out with a base definition if anyone doesn't know what autophagy means? So let's talk about what happens as a fast sort of unrolls as we go deeper and deeper into a fast. So let's say we get up in the morning, uh, we have a breakfast of cereals. Those carbohydrates are broken down to glucose. That glucose floods the bloodstream. Now the body will preferentially use this glucose as its primary fuel until it runs out. About four to six hours after that meal, the glucose will have run out and the body will tap the glycogen stores in the liver and the muscles. Glycogen is just stored glucose. It's glucose for a rainy day. So after about 12 hours, the glycogen will be up, assuming you're maintaining some low level activity like walking or just going about your day, maintaining metabolism. Um, but the glycogen will run out and at about 16 to 18 hours, um, after you've eaten your last carbohydrate meal, a process by the name of gluconeogenesis kicks in. Uh, this is the body's ability to convert amino acids and fats to glucose, which then floods the bloodstream and keeps you moving, keep your, keeps your metabolism maintained. Um, so gluconeogenesis does end up running out as well. And roughly about 24 hours after your last feed, um, to some extent, a process called ketogenesis will begin. Um, Shake sort of hit on this a little bit earlier. Ketogenesis is sort of the process. It's the, it's the 
optimizing function of the ketogenic diet. You're trying to get into a ketotic state. And ketosis is basically when the body truly has no energy left, so the liver mobilizes ketone bodies. And we don't have to go into what those are, but they're basically uh, the body's last resort for energy. And so what's interesting is the deeper you go into the fast, the more the benefits accrue to the body. So Chris hit on autophagy earlier. Autophagy does not start when gluconeogenesis starts. Autophagy starts at a minimum when ketogenesis starts, which is roughly 24 hours. So if you're targeting autophagy, if that's important to you, which I think it, it should be, then you need to be periodic fasting to some extent. And so what autophagy really is, is, I mean, it's, it's a deeply, deeply powerful biological system. It's effectively senescent old cells are murdered and their energy is channeled into newer, more virile cells. It's the body realizing that there's no energy around. There's no slack around. So it needs to be ruthlessly efficient with where it's putting its energy. It's sort of a, a creative destruction. And I think an interesting sort of analogy is um, in, in 2008, going to early 2009, we had a financial crisis, right? 2007, there was a lot of energy, financial energy in the system. Money was easy and it was being channeled everywhere into the system. All of a sudden, all of that money got sucked out when things crashed. And so all of the sort of lazy, useless, non-innovative companies immediately went to zero. They died and all that energy was channeled into the newer, innovative companies that would make up the next generation we still have today. A very similar thing happens in the body. When you're fasted, the body has to figure out what is absolutely essential. And that's the newer, greener cells. So autophagy is literally your body maintaining youth in real time. Um, and what's tricky about that is autophagy was a part of our genetic past, uh, a critical part. In fact, those humans that were able to deal with extended fasted states were the humans that survived and we inherited those genes. And many of us don't, we don't encounter autophagy at all, right? There's, there's many of us who haven't gone 24 hours without food for, for decades. Um, and there's a really strong suggestion that you simply don't access autophagy at all unless you're fasted. Um, so I think that's a, a fairly powerful um, endorsement of, of some, some fasting regime. So basically our, our bodies, I mean, kind of the thesis is our bodies evolved to work in this environment where, you know, food was scarce. And so you're going to have a lot of volatility or variance of when you get food. So it develops mechanisms to basically do repair when there's no food. Um, and now we live in a society where food's so abundant and that's obviously progress. But we just assume that more food is, is good. So we're going to constantly eat. And we've kind of forgotten that, you know, there is this uh, very primitive metabolic system that requires there to be an absence of food to do its work. Right. So it's almost like this progress we've made on having so much food. We uh, we didn't realize that we're giving up um, this very important process of, of fasting. Right. Exactly. Are there. Are there, um, or I, I know there are, but do you know what the biological markers would be like to determine 
okay, this person is at this level of autophagy? Um, I don't. I don't. That's actually that's a really good question. I, I mean, I, again, I'm not sure if we are if we don't even know what the underlying mechanisms are that that are autophagy. Like we know old cells die, we know new cells get new energy, um, but we don't really know what the trigger point is. We know it's you know somewhere after a ketotic state. But if we don't even know the underlying mechanisms, my guess is we probably don't have a touchstone that tells us when autophagy is happening. But I mean, I, I could be wrong. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. But it's kind of like one of these, like, it's a, it's a broader, there's a broader lesson there, I think. Like, we have this tendency, especially like, you know, post-importance of religion that everything needs to have some sort of a you know, scientific backing or metric that gives us some indication that there was a randomized controlled trial. But um, I think in the realm of health, you, you can, I mean, there's a fantastic quote by Naval, I have it here. The older the problems, the older the solution. How to eat well is one of the oldest problems. So, I mean, we're still here today, right? So the, the simulations on health and eating and fasting have been run, right? They were run by our ancestors, that's why we're alive. So we can kind of look back to that wisdom as intuition. Um, and what that wisdom says is that autophagy was an important process that occurred when we fast, right? So whether or not I can measure how much autophagy is happening, um, I think the burden of proof is on, on kind of the apologists for constant eating. Yeah. I think uh, this is like an interesting meta point is how do you decide something's true or at least useful to you? So for me, um, I'm not steeped in the biological literature. So once I start getting into like the mechanisms behind fasting, as much as I want to understand it, there's just too much context I don't have, right? So I've gone down the, you stop eating sugar and then there's no insulin in your blood and then the liver responds and it produces this, right? And I tried to follow that and it's way too hard. So I can't really trust pure science. And, and then from Sam's points, like how do you actually know you're on a t in uh, autophagy is happening. Um, and so I think if you just go off of that, like anyone can spin a scientific story about how your body is reacting to certain health advice. And so you have to come at it with this like multi-dimensional lens. And that's where I think the fact that religion, all these religions have it baked in as a very sacred practice. Um, you have the evolutionary argument with the fact that it kind of makes sense that Paleolithic man um, was living in this fast and famine type environment. And then also, this is like if you can with health stuff, I think it's good to try it yourself. So if you try to do a fast, you'll realize that you feel energized um, and, uh, you know, your, your senses are heightened, etc. Um, it, make, it makes you reflective on your relationship to food. And so I think when you come into these like kind of mental models, life strategies, you, you, you should look for ways that you can confirm something to be a valuable across multiple uh, different frameworks or mental models. And if you only have science, uh, science isn't enough because especially in nutrition, there's science for everything, right? Like there's someone making a podcast out there called Not Fasting and they're giving you all the science about why you shouldn't fast. Um, and so I think as you operate in the world, uh, as much as you can find 
multiple mental models that support something, the more confidence you have. And if you only have one lens to support something, um, you shouldn't be as confident in it. Um, at least that's how I approach health stuff yeah. because I'm not an expert. Is the uh, I agree. memes? Is the, is the non-fasting podcast funded by General Mills? <laughs> yeah, and and the tobacco companies. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing too. Science is, um, you know, science is an exploratory process where truth isn't known. And a lot of times, when people are telling you science is sure, there's probably business behind it. Not to shill conspiracy theories, but. Um, <laughs> A lot of times you go and you look and the people who are most sure have an incentive to be 100% sure. And the most deeply scientific people will tell you that science is uh, an ongoing process and we're not certain of things. E.g. Uh, Feynman always has all these quotes about how science is an ongoing process. Yeah. So if someone, so if you read something in the New York Times that tells you like this study will definitely lose you 10 pounds and all the scientists agree, uh, your, your BS detector should go off. That's a uh, that's an interesting point too. At the end, um, where there 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 can be a study fabricated to support anything, and and there there tends to be studies supported to fabricate something if there's a profit incentive, right? And this is like this is it's against that backdrop that I very much appreciate what fasting affords us, like with all the uncertainty around how to act, especially in the health space. A pretty fantastic model is, well, you should look behind whatever recommendations you're getting and see who's benefiting. If it's no one, then the recommendation is probably pretty good. And so no one benefits from the recommendation for us to eat less, right? There's nobody that makes money there. So that immediately makes it more likely to me that that prescription is accurate. Whereas breakfast is the most important meal of the day. We know what's behind that. So it's uncertain and it's, it's a good point. And there's, there's a capital incentive there, but fasting is a really good point. No one benefits, but you. The follow the money heuristic FTM. If there's no money at the end of the rainbow, then it might be a good little thing for you to pick up. Yeah. Walking, fasting, meditating. Yeah. I guess, I guess that dude, Andy on Headspace is getting rich yeah, off everybody yeah. meditating, but <laughs> hopefully he's donating it away. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, that's super interesting. I, I mean, I think you got to stay frosty with uh, science and who's who's showing you this advice. All right, so how, sure. did, how did you guys, um, how did you guys enter the fasting world um, and why have you kept with it? Uh, and then a final question, um, what's your kind of variety of fasting or like some aspect of fasting that you didn't expect to be so important, but now like you really care about. So for example, um, I don't know, you guys mentioned being able to reflect and kind of avoid the dominant institution of food or something that's just not sort of in the, in the key health benefit category. Chris, you want to go first? Um, I mean, the way I got started was TJ was doing it. And so then I just mimicked my, my, my five closest friends. So <laughs> I started doing it. Um, and I just really liked intermittent fasting because it gives your, um, 
gives you a more heightened sense of like a bimodal way of living. Like in the morning, you're not eating at the night and at night you eat and get a little sleepy. Um, and so I kind of got addicted to the, in the morning feeling like, uh, kind of the, like the mini fasted state. So that's how I got into it. How'd you get into it, Sammy? For me, uh, Shaney, actually. Shaney, like, just... Your girlfriend. Yeah, this is my girlfriend. I was, um, I was struggling to lose weight. And I, in the background. I kept trying. I tried, like, keto multiple times, and I couldn't stick with it. And she wanted to start doing intermittent fasting. So um, I did it with her. And... Um, but then with the longer term fasting, that was that was basically through YouTube, uh, I think. You know, I just found some. There were some people that I was already watching about nutrition and fitness stuff, and and uh, some of them talked about longer term fasting, and I thought it was interesting. For me, like the biggest, um, the biggest thing that was kind of came as a surprise, right? Like going into it, I expected like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose weight and I'm gonna have more time. Um, you know, that's pretty much what all I expected. But um, the focus of fasting, which I think is kind of what you touched on, that's that's what really um, surprised me. And then even now, like <clears throat> every time I've done a fast longer than one day, after I get over the 24-hour hump, I feel just incredible. And I still get some hunger throughout the day, but um, the, the longest fast I ever did, which was like 70 hours, it... Um, there was this one moment where I felt like I was on drugs. So it was like euphoric yeah. feeling yeah. after I lifted weights yeah. one day. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah, like, it's nuts. You can, you, yeah. you can hallucinate without the drugs. Yeah. It literally felt like I was hallucinating almost. Yeah. Um, but, but, but which in, was very surprising, but not in a, in, not in like sort of a, a sozzle loopy way. Right. It was, it was very, yeah. it, was, it was almost like, your brain was just running on, you're running on yourself. Like you're, you're just this, you know, autarkic just being. You have no sugar or energy left in the pipes and your body is literally fueling itself and it feels just divine. Yeah. Yeah, dude. What, like, yeah, when, when we say hallucinate, at least for me, it was, it was, the, I remember getting out of, uh, getting out of my car when I got back from the gym, it was early in the morning, the sun was rising and I was just noticing all these little details where, like where I lived in the, the building I lived in, I was noticing things I had never seen before, you know? And I just felt so at peace and like what it, and honestly, it, I get why it's part of, um, many religious, religious practices because, and I kind of experienced this last night, you know, I, I consider myself a Christian. I definitely believe in God, you know, and I pray and stuff. And, um, last night I was at dinner time. That's when it got rough. Like I, I was really hungry, nauseous. I was like, dude, like, I feel like something bad's going to happen, but I was, I was wanted to hold myself accountable and just be like, all right, I'm going to, you know, do what I said I was going to do. And, it, and I had this feeling I was sitting alone in my room and it was like, the only thing I could think of was God, you know, or, uh, you know, a higher power of some sort. So it, that that was the first time during fasting where I understood that is because I was just sitting there, no nothing to distract me, you know, yeah, no food or drinks or TV, and I was just and it, that it was the logical conclusion was like to to have kind of a, a spiritual moment. Yeah, <clears throat> this is interesting because uh, I just I remember this um, from college is Aldous Huxley is like a very famous um, like writer in the whole psychedelic space wrote Brave New World, but also wrote this book called The Doors of Perception, which is about him doing ayahuasca, I think. 
that's like a famous book when you do um, psychedelics for the first time. But he also wrote a book, and I can't find the name of it, but I'll pull it up later. But it's basically this about how there's all these kind of traditions baked into different religions that um, naturally inspire a a kind of psychedelic experience. Um, and he kind of talks about how fasting um, is this way of like naturally bringing on some of the benefits of psychedelic experiences. And, he, and that, that's kind of a, uh, a common thread through it is that, you know, people do drugs and it's a really cheap and easy way to have these crazy experiences. But then a lot of these people turn to like meditation and fasting as like these natural ways of getting into a similar introspective state. And, it's, and because it's more natural, it's easy to it's it's more um, it's more seamless getting in and out of it versus right. obviously like. Well, it's interesting. Like acid, if you did acid, it would just be like you can like get into it really fast, but it's unnatural, and so it can have more negative effects. Versus if you're fasting, yeah. like you're slowly getting into the state that like you kind of naturally put yourself into. Um, so it's a it's a superior form. Um, the, the way I the way I think about it real quick is like you you earn it almost so through like deep prayer meditation fasting it requires it's a challenge in one way or another yep. whereas like like smoking weed taking mushrooms it's kind of like you just you know got a cheap ticket to whatever spiritual experience whereas when you earn it you can kind of understand i feel like you can understand the experience more if that makes sense mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, yeah. you also there, there's i think both of those are excellent points but a third is um Look, I, I'm a big, a big of a proponent for hallucinogenics as, as anyone. Um, and I think the benefits largely exceed the downsides. But, you know, that notwithstanding, you know, people are, are petrified by the downsides, by, by the, the probability of, of that downside to the extent that they won't try those things and then they'll, they'll never act, be able to access any of the upsides. So they're worried about maintaining control, which I think is important to humans. When we feel like we're out of control, it's, it's kind of tough to bang on. What's nice about these practices, whether it's, you know, fasting, opening the doors of perception, or whether it's meditation or sauna, opening the doors of perception, is you can end it whenever you want. Or you can dip in deeper. You have agency over where your mind is going. And even, like, this is, this is turning into a, 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 a drug podcast, but um, you, you can get a taste of what it's like, right, without, you know, being on a on a seven hour potential roller coaster that you're, you're unable to, to unclip from, which is, which is fascinating. And I think it makes sense. Like you, you guys are talking about kind of how fasting as an extreme allows you to really dial in, Hey, you're saying dial into God or, or sort of a, a spiritual being. And Chris, you're talking about sort of being more contemplative. I mean, you also see the, the, the sauna practice. It's almost like these extremes that were so natural in our evolutionary past are what enable you to kind of detach from the ego and the perceptions and the dial and objectives of the daily moment and actually access a different, more serene place. I think it's compelling. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I guess fasting is this, uh, you know, because you're going from being able to eat, not being able to eat, this binary kind of, way of living uh, kind of ties into your general thesis about exposing yourself to um, 
different, like many different states, right? Teach like a lot with a lot of variants. So hot, a lot of cold, a lot of heat. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. Big, 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 big dynamic range. Like we we live in a very sort of coddled band of conditions. And you want to you want to bust out of that band, expose the body to the volatility, because um, it responds well to that. Does someone want to introduce uh, Hormesis? Hormesis the Elder. Did we bring up Hormesis last week? I don't or know. No. Maybe. I think I, I might have tried to explain it. Basically, Hermesis is uh, the dose makes the response is the pithy way to remember it. But it's that exposure to anything is dependent on how much like how much that of exposure you get. So even for toxins, small exposure can be salubrious for you, where once you get a lot like a lot of exposure, it starts to get um, dangerous and uncomfortable. And that also means it can also mean that um, Kind of the flip side. This is hormesis has meant that like small exposure to toxins or or threats is good for you. Um, it also can mean the doses response that even something good, if you have it in abundance, is bad for you, right? Um, so sugar, if you eat a little bit of sugar, could be good for you because obviously it's a huge energy boost. But then when you get it to modern levels of sugar, it's bad for you. Um, so I guess what's some example of hermetics that you're doing? I mean, fasting is one, right? Like you don't want to be fasting for seven days. That's a, that's chronic stress on the body. Um, but a 24, 36 hour fast, a really tight focused dose of stress and then returning back to your normal life is, is good or anything, right? Like exposure to extreme temperatures on both sides. Um, you know, doing 10 minutes of sprints or really high intensity activity as opposed to 60, 90 minutes of jogging, J jogging, jo jogging is the idea of chronic stress, sort of like eating constantly, right? It's, it's this chronic state of moderation. Whereas what you want is you want a barbell, which is, you know, short bursts of insane stress and then, and then take it easy for the rest of the time. But the effect of that latter strategy on the body is far more robust, really anti-fragile than kind of the, the moderation, uh, the moderation strategy. Um, guys, let's, yeah, there's just go ahead, go ahead, bro. Uh, I was just gonna say, there's this whole kind of criticism of society that people have gotten into it, it about. I, I remember Jonathan Haidt talking about this. He wrote like this, the the righteous mind and the coddling of the American mind, um, or maybe the righteous self. I don't remember the name of the book, but basically that. If you don't get exposed to harm, you go you go weaker over time, right. right? And so somehow we've gotten the idea that progress is just like um, obviating all potential challenges and stress and harm, and that that's what we should be doing. But really, we should be continuing to expose ourselves uh, to difficult things. So there's just like crazy stat how. Uh, basically peanut allergies have gone up like a huge amount in the last 20 years. It could be a fabricated statistic like we were talking about earlier, but the general reason is like mom started freaking out that people are having peanut allergies. So then they basically banned peanuts from, from elementary schools. And then, so the number of uh, peanut allergies went way up. Right. And you see that kind of like that type of, uh, archetype of reaction from like a, a crazy mom is that they're like 
my child will not have any negative exposure. And so then they're, they end up doing that across the board. And then the, the child is just so frail. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of an interesting, uh, interesting thing to think about. I mean, that, that particular example right there, I got that. That's a great one. Just exposure to the stressor will alleviate, um, pain in the long run. So like with an allergy, the body is, is mistaking a protein for a pathogen. And that's because it hasn't seen that protein a lot, but if it sees that protein a lot, it adjusts to it, stops mistaking it as a pathogen and then stops sort of the crazy immune response. Um, like you see that a lot, like there's a ton of allergies today. It, it, like think about, think about how preposterous a pollen allergy is, right? Like how, how can a pollen allergy be an immutable genetic thing, right? Like how could our ancestors have been allergic to trees? It's just like, it's, it's right. patently absurd. So just exposure to the toxin gives you the long run shield. <laughs> like, yeah. Just I mean, dose is the response. If you're allergic to pollen, don't jump in a, a pollen basket. Um, but I think the idea is like small exposure to pathogens, antigen or whatever pathogens are uh, beneficial. And I mean, it's interesting. Like, I don't know how our immune system works, obviously. Like I said, I'm not an expert, but um, it's like a probabilistic machine that's trying to send out, like it's trying to understand what's going in the body and just trying different mutations to solve issues going in in your body. And then once it finds, um, what are they called? Are they anti? What what's the things flowing through your body that are killing intruders? Antibodies. Do you know, do you know what they're? Antibodies. Like it's trying to make different patterns of antibodies constantly, right? Because it doesn't know what's gonna it's gonna be affected by, and so then once it realizes uh, it's found a new successful antibody pattern to use, it'll start producing more of those. What that kind of means is that um, by giving yourself small exposure to um, to pathogens, your body can can like go through that process and learn the type of antibodies it needs to create. And so being exposed to like small doses of uh, pathogens all the time, I think it makes your your uh, immune system stronger. Who knows? I mean, it's COVID. So I'm not saying that you should go not a doctor. people, but <laughs> not a doctor. <laughs> I'm a um, or, you know, like Drake said, I'm a pop star, not a doctor. <laughs> That really resonated <laughs> but so not a doctor and and riff on something i don't know anything about <laughs> so the, the broader the broader takeaway here which is right this is a fundamental lever is that the body the body responds really really well to stress there are certain systems that are anti-fragile that will only be their strongest if they get some stress and so fasting is a perfect example of that type of stress. It gives you in return autophagy, which is literally your body maintaining youth. It's a very, very powerful thing. And I think it's sort of, um, it's avoided, right? Because fasting is still seen, not still, it is now seen as an extreme. Um, and I think this quote from, from Guru Anaerobic, or I think his name is, is Mark Baker, who um, a lot of his ideas pervade this podcast. I'd highly, I'd personally highly recommend him. He's a contrarian, good thinker. Um, he said, people who argue that fasting is an extreme or an excessive behavior need to think harder. Fasting is a normal part of our evolutionary history. 
Abstinence is not extreme behavior, like sleeping is not extreme inactivity. Some people will never understand fasting. Aside from any health aspects, they don't have the faculty to understand the notion of denial in the midst of abundance. Uh, which I think is, is pretty brilliant, um, because it is now contrarian to deny yourself abundance, right? It's, the institution of food is so normal, moderation of food is so normal, um, that you see time and time again, medical professionals and even just, you know, positions of authority um, recommending to be constantly fed as if it's the healthiest, most obvious thing in the world. And it seems obvious to me that it doesn't at all reflect our evolutionary past or where our genes came from. Do, can one of you guys briefly uh, define a, uh, anti-fragile? Sure. You got it, Tej. So, um, I don't know, yeah, I would describe systems entities beings in, in three kind of ways. One is um, weak, one is robust, and one is anti-fragile. So a weak system is a weak system, we know what that is. Um, robust um, suggests to me sort of a resilience, like an ability to um, fend off and defend um, against an attack or a stress. Um, but when a robust system breaks, it gets weaker. It's no longer robust. So with an extremely strong stressor, a robust system can break. An anti-fragile system um, is one that benefits from the stress. It gets stronger from the stress. Um, and there are a lot of them around. The human body is one of them. Um, I'd say broader kind of capitalism is another, right? When bad things happen, both of those systems get stronger. And so we kind of want to tap into that anti-fragility. We've got an anti-fragile system it would be sort of arrogant not to tap into into kind of the power of that of that leverage yeah one way to think about it is like a really good mechanical system should be robust so what you throw at it it kind of keeps operating the same um usually for something to be anti-fragile it's adaptive in some sense so when it gets stress or information or if it gets put into some volatile situation it takes that information and reconfigures itself some way uh, such that um, it gets stronger or better. Um, that's the reason why, I mean, obviously with like Darwinian evolution, that's why organic things can be anti-fragile because the stress comes in, maybe it wipes out a part of the population and then a different part of the gene, uh, gene pool gets selected. And so it adapts to that. I mean, so, like if in the strong case for capitalism, uh, when the environment changes, the businesses that are sustainable changes and it reconfigures itself. Um, and so anything that's adaptive, I mean, adaptive and anti-fragile are different, but I think you get this level of adaptivity um, with something that's anti-fragile. Yeah. And your body has all these processes, like the your immune system is a is an anti-fragile system because by getting those, like, like I was just saying, like, um, stress and information tells it what type of antibodies it should be making right um which then make it stronger in the long run uh if you if you don't expose yourself to any information and then one day you come in contact with a uh, really bad pathogen you can get wiped out and so you actually should have been getting more volatility in the pathogens you're exposing yourself to yeah um yeah I've, i heard this guy describe anti-fragile it was on the what bitcoin did podcast and he's talked about 
with superheroes and there's like there's always the one superhero like in x-men it's it's rogue i don't know if you guys i like superhero movies and stuff but rogue like anybody she touches she gets their power so it's like it's kind of like that it's like there could be a guy who has you know laser laser eyes but if the laser eye guy came across rogue she shoots him with his lasers then she can shoot lasers you know it's it's, it's kind of like that it, like you said it gets stronger with i'm thinking about another example too would be um you know a philosopher or, or a writer who's who goes in a lot of debates and it's like every time they get debated and their their ideas are challenged their understanding of their own idea and their support for their own idea gets stronger you know um whereas if somebody's kind of operating in an echo chamber they never get that that stressor and then they're kind of more well they're not even robust they might be just weak with their idea you know, you know the, the epitome of that and that, that's a i think that's right right like someone someone who's in public who's in very public forums often um there's, there's sort of a there's sort of like a streisand effect where regardless of what you're saying, especially if it's inflammatory, you're going to grow, right, in your following. I feel like Jordan Peterson's kind of anti-fragile in that way. Like, he puts himself, in fact, he puts himself, I, I fucking, I respect the man for a lot of reasons, but he puts himself in some really ugly situations that any, any human without just, you know, dark triad traits would feel super stressed in. He gets attacked over and over and over and over again, but he puts himself in it over and over and over again. And now, I mean, he's got a tremendous following um, and a tremendous brand built around the response to that stress. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of Jordan Peterson too when I said like, uh, you know, someone who debates a lot and philosopher, yeah. Um, I wanted to bring it back to, to fasting. Um, oh, also, what's the, what's the Streisand effect? I know I've heard of it. It's just, um, it's the idea that when you try to suppress something it only amplifies that so um you know when china makes reading printing or selling orwell's 1984 illegal then sales go through the roof yeah it just happened with uh dr seuss they it happens a lot it gets brought up a lot with cancel culture so they'll try to cancel some piece of information and then it gets more attention yeah um, but Dude, dr that... seuss a lot of his books just started popping off Selling for hundreds of dollars because they tried to cancel it. A hilarious example was, um, man, I want to remember his name, but it's this country singer, and and he like, dude, it's so whack. His neighbor across the street was filming him late at night, and he was drunk, and he was like saying goodbye to his buddy, and he was like, "All right, be safe, my," and he he said the n word, and he's and he's like a white country guy with the fucking mullet, you know. And this, and the the neighbor like sent this video to you know TMZ or or whoever was those those type of outlets, and the guy and it was this big story and like his record label like dropped him and all this stuff. But the day that that happened, his album sales like spiked up and he had the most album sales in a single day that he's ever had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's pretty hilarious. Um, but yeah, so in terms of fasting, I want to get into like kind of some of the methodology that that we all use. Um, Maybe maybe Tej can go first. What what do you consume during a fast? What uh, and kind of like are there any other types of uh, like, yeah like I said methods? I mean, what's your workouts look like? Does your does your uh, workflow change at all during a fast? Uh, yeah, so that's, that's a good question. Um, so I've been fasting for a long time. Um, I use kind of two contraptions. 
One is I'll intermittent fast every day. Like I haven't eaten breakfast in years. And I think breakfast is kind of an abomination to be honest. Um, and then I'll use periodic fasting as well. Um, and that's, I'll do periodic fasting periodically. So um, usually that'll be one day a week, there's no food. Um, typically that'll be like midweek. Um, so I can kind of look forward to the weekend and, and splurge a bit. Um, and then once a quarter, I'll do a longer fast, uh, like a 72 hour guy for like a proper refresh, like a really deep dip into uh, autophagy. But um, in terms of like, what you eat, like the fast maximalist will say, like if you're trying to really fast, you eat nothing, you drink nothing. Um, I, I guess water and, and coffee are fine. No, no calories, no energy. Um, um, and without consuming energy, you're not only giving your body like a metabolic fast um, and allowing the energy plumbing to, um, to kind of rejuvenate, but you're also giving your stomach a digestive fast. Like you give those enzymes and your gut, those pipes a break, which is like a true fast maximalist. Um, what I find is unless I'm like, cutting for the summer, like proper cutting. Um, I usually like to take on some semblance of amino acids um, because I do like to strength train and that's not gonna change anytime soon. And if you're fasting for 72 hours without taking on some amino acids, um, you're gonna have trouble maintaining strength. Even if you eat a huge, enormous um, OMAD after that, it's, it's gonna be tough not to have your body eaten some of those, those muscle fibers. So what I'll do is I'll drink some bone broth. Um, I had some of that earlier today, which is you know, 60 to 80 calories. But you do get those essential amino acids, which, um, which are gonna activate the mTOR pathway, which is like an anabolic pathway. And anabolism is just growth. Catabolism is, is, um, is death or, um, or downright. Okay. You can think about it as a, as a cat you know, attacks downwards. Um, That's a good way to remember it. So I, I do take on a little bit, I mean, always coffee because, um, someone's phone is dinging. Yeah, it's mine. It's my bad. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cause my, uh, my headphones didn't work. Um, no worries. Keep, you can keep going. So I was just going to say like when I fast a lot of stimulants, always, uh, stimulants help you get through the fast and especially something like nicotine is a, is down regulates appetite, which is nice as, as does coffee. Um, but yeah, small amounts of amino acids, I think, are, are pretty critical if you want to be heavy strength training during your fast. So that's what I do. Cool. Chris, I know you haven't done that many longer term ones, but how do you... I'm not, I'm not on the periodic 72-hour fast. Um, I'm just a... Uh, do you train fast. fasted, Chris? Yeah, so I usually do... Um, skip breakfast and then i work out at lunch most days so i'll lift more like do sprints or something and then um, while i'm fasted and then i break fast af afterwards eating which is usually pretty good yeah. and then and then dinner um and then run it back i mean occasionally i do 24-hour fast I, I find it easier to do 24-hour fast when i'm in uh terroir incognita so like if I'm traveling to a new place and like I'm already kind of like out of my routine, it's the time I like to try to do a 24 hour fast. But it's like I'm already in like kind of a stress state and uncomfortable. So I kind of just I find it easy, easy to fast while traveling. Um, or yeah, if I'm on vacation with someone like, like TJ, we can fast together. Uh, so the the longer fasts are kind of more random for me. 
versus <laughs> versus IF every day. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I'm pretty similar to TJ um, in terms of kind of my, my protocol. <clears throat> but uh, I think the one difference, and TJ, we talked about this on, on our podcast, the one difference for me is I do um, I do electrolytes. And so, and Tej um, had a good point, which is that like our ancestors, when they're fasting, they didn't have like potassium, magnesium supplement to take during the fast, which which I've, which I've thought about too. But um, for anyone listening, it's basically, I just do um, sodium, potassium and, and magnesium. And I've found that especially the potassium can help a lot with, um, as you get into the longer fast, you know, sometimes like I've had like pretty crazy heart palpitations when I'm like 48, you know, 50 hours into a fast and um, magnesium can usually help, help me with that. But th I think there's something to be said for just like toughing it out, so to say, you know, um, now doing it without coffee would be pretty much, I don't know, that would be really, really getting some deep length, you know, I mean, but, but um, but yeah, I do the, I do what, the electrolytes. What can you do without coffee? You can't do anything. Without coffee. I can't even, yeah, dude, I'm pretty fragile in that aspect, uh, you know, <laughs> caffeine, uh, but, uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, the, the amino acids, I think is interesting. And I know I, I was watching Ben Greenfield talk about that and, and he does the same thing. And I think it's, uh, I think it's a good point. And something that I learned maybe for anyone listening, who's into, you know, strength training, bodybuilding type stuff, who lifts weights, right. And wants to preserve muscle when you fast. Um, and there's, there's studies that show this, but when you fast your, your HGA, your human growth hormone spikes really heavily. And some people, who are wrong, think that that means you're building muscle, but it, 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 you don't actually build muscle in a fast. You don't have any like, you know, raw material for it. You obviously need protein with, with amino acids. Um, but people hypothesize that the spike in GH is um, responsible for preserving muscle. Cause actually that's what a lot of bodybuilders were do is take GH like when they're cutting for a bodybuilding show to, to preserve the muscle. Um, Cause they're dieting down, you know, sub 10% body fat. And so kind of the, and I, and I think that that's, that's why we do that. It's because if the way I think about it in the evolutionary perspective is if you're going, you know, three days without food, it wouldn't make sense for your body to like need rest because your body's like, I need to go find food. I need to go hunt and kill food right now. Yes. So it would make sense that it's, that there's a mechanism by which to preserve the muscle, even though muscle is calorically expensive so to say you know it, it it costs your body more energy to hold on to muscle as opposed to fat which at rest burns basically nothing um but yeah it's interesting to think about that like like why like why would our ancestors fast it's you know most likely before the advent of religion like they weren't doing it out of choice but out of um, necessity and it would make sense that they like you get this boost and <clears throat> frankly i feel that boost right fucking now dude I like, I think I've only had two cups of coffee, but I feel way more energetic than I usually do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I completely agree. Um, I think the evolutionary framework is, is interesting just to, because you can, you can intuit your, your way through that, right? If, if you're thinking about a behavior, you just need to sort of visualize what signals that behavior would have given to your genes 
in an evolutionary context. And you can sort of, without getting too analytical and scientific, you can, you can give a rough approximation to what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing, right? Like you don't need to understand the science to kind of get an approximation of what it would mean evolutionarily. So right. that's kind of my approach. It's like, okay, I'm pretty sure that I, I believe these studies that say, hey, we measured their growth hormone and it was fucking 400% up during a fast. Right. And so it's like, how do I interpret that? You know, it's, it's pretty simple, like we said. And again, with the focus, that makes sense too. You know, like if you think about like hunting with a fucking spear, you know, I mean, you're not hunting cattle, you're, you're hunting who knows man a deer can you imagine hunting a deer with a fucking spear how dialed you have to be yeah, you know I could, I could imagine that and i think also that's that's an important is the idea of of hunter mode so when you're when you're devoid of nutrition right you're sending a signal to your genes that um there's not food around so something needs to be solved and so you can you have two options if you want to maintain your exercise like one is jog right be the marathon boy and doing moderate level activity but that signals to the body is something that's very different than if you're doing high intensity training. If you're jogging long distances, just in general, or while fasted, it indicates to the body that there's no food around and so you're migrating. And the bodily tissue that is the most useless and the most heavy when migrating is muscle. So if you're sending signals that you're migrating all the time, your muscle is going to get shredded in favor of fat. Fat is just little energy packs on the body. If you got to migrate across the Mongolian steppe, you don't need muscle. What you need is fat. And so on the other side of the coin, if you're fasted and you're dialed in, ripping sprints, doing heavy training work, right? You're signaling to the body that you're hunting. And if you're hunting, there's definitely food around. If you're fasted and hunting, the body is going to all the more want to secure that food. And so... If you're doing that high intensity training, you're going to, in some way, trigger anabolic pathways. Whereas if you're doing moderate level, sort of high volume training, you're going to trigger catabolic pathways. And, you know, it, if the end of your fast just means you're, you have lower muscle mass, right? And have gotten a little autophagy, that's not nearly as good as if you yeah. achieved the autophagy, shredded fat and maintained muscle. That's sort of the, the godly troika. Yeah, dude. And it, this is something important. I think a lot of people understand, even just in the context of a traditional diet and calorie restriction, like if you don't put your muscle under stress, your body doesn't have a reason to keep it. Right. You know, right. If, if you're like, you could lose a ton of weight and not move a muscle. You could lose a ton of weight and sit on the couch all day and eat 500 calories a day. Right. But like, what's that telling your body again in the evolutionary context? And, and there's something else I wanted to add to that, um, that we hadn't really touched on with the fasting. We, we've, we've all touched on the, the mental benefits, the focus, something that I realized the first, uh, the 70 the hour fast I did, um, I was, mo I was really decisive. And I think that, again, that's an evolutionary thing. Like you don't have the luxury of like pondering a choice, you know, it's like, we don't even want to waste that energy. You got to, you're making a decision. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I'd, I'd never thought of that. Um, I, I wouldn't have. Have you guys noticed anything like that? I'd be curious. Maybe it's just me. I mean, I, I, the, the decisiveness I hadn't noticed. I mean, I noticed just insane up, up regulation in, in, uh, in focus and just sensitivity to input, which is unbelievable. Like, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. I mean, if you're 48 hours into a fast and there's no food around, like, your sense of smell and your eye and your hearing better get their act together or else you're going to die, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that kind of touched on that with like the hallucination aspect, but yeah, your vision gets sharper. It's, it's really quite crazy. Um, is there anything else that you guys wanted to touch on anything to wrap it up here? I think, um, one thing I was going to add just cause we keep coming back to these evolutionary arguments is there's a counter to evolutionary arguments called that people call them just so stories. And so it's this idea that like, it's hard to test why an evolutionary argument would be true because you're kind of going back hundreds of years and saying we evolved in this way. So we do these things. And so evolutionary arguments can kind of be co-opted um, pretty easily to say things that aren't true. So an example of a just so story would be like, you know, um, men need to have sex. So, they're they're always going to do they're always going to be mean to you in the workplace because to get sex they um they need to be they need to show that they're very strong or or something something very like kind of reductive um and i think you can hear those a lot and i think thing about fasting is uh there's there's all there's like multiple vectors that are supporting it um and so it's not like just the evolutionary argument, um, which I think then ends up lending more weight to the evolutionary argument in this case. So kind of coming back to my meta point of staying frosty with people trying to convince you um, of their of their book, uh, something to maybe check out. Just so sto- just so stories. It's kind of a critique of evolutionary uh, arguments, but it's we'll kind of a that. last second. Throw it in there, kind of. Kind of 180. Um, we could have closed up all nice and coherent, and I just threw that in. Edit, there, but... edit, hey, editor, link that. <laughs> no, no, no. We need, we need, we need a proper, proper backlash and doubt involved. That's it, everything. That's 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 part of the intellectual dial. The last thing I would add it's, is what it's open in a process. Yeah, exactly. We're exploring, additive. Um, the last thing I would add is, um, I mean, I hope in this podcast that. Um, the levered lads have, you know, either brought um, some perspective or shed some light on the importance of fasting. But um, in case it wasn't, um, you know, super compelling, um, the idea, I think the most important idea underlying fasting by far, in a way, way beyond fat loss, way beyond honing your senses, way beyond, um, you know, illuminating the extent to which food and drink dominate our lives, but is this idea of autophagy, right? Like people are, we want to live long, healthy, youthful, boundless lives. Um, and there's all these sort of newfangled contraptions that people try to sell you in order to push that narrative, right? Like cosmetic cream to ensure that your skin doesn't wrinkle or acne medication or sunscreen or a particular diet plan or like an exercise ball. There's all of this stuff, right? That has a profit incentive behind it. But we know as a fact that if you're able to just dig deep and not eat for a little bit longer than is comfortable, you get access to a literal youth state. Um, so, you know, focus, figure out what you really want and sort of ignore the broader expectation from society that we eat regularly and see if it's for you. Try it. 
um, before you bash it. Um, and my guess is you'll be on kind of the same dial train that, that the three lads are on. Oh yeah, I agree. It's like, it costs you nothing. It costs What do you have to lose? Nada. Well, uh, should we close it out? I mean, Bitcoin's about to hit 57,000, so I'm going to just yep, take a beer. I'm probably. in a long. Actually, I just closed my long. <laughs> Locked in profits. <laughs> Learning to be a smart trader, not get greedy. Well, yeah, guys, thank you for listening, everybody. Um, we're going to link a couple of the things that we talked about below. And um, yeah, we'll see you on the next one. Peace Much man. love. <laughs>